Hello everybody, I'm Dwayne Mancini and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. You can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com or follow us on LinkedIn. If you are enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview-style podcast on the medtech industry where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. In this episode, our host, Giovanni Loricella, and our guest, Haman Deval from Ajacor, discuss what it's like to work with an investment banker, the uniqueness of raising capital out of China, what it's like to be a European startup, bypassing a traditional Series A round, negotiations with China investments, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Haman Deval. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project MedTech. Haman, thank you very much for joining us here today. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. Very excited to talk with you today because we're gonna get a sense of what's it like as a MedTech startup to use an investment banker and the value that comes along with that. What's it like to raise money as being a European startup company and raising that capital out of China? And then a little bit of the interesting notions of during an actual capital raise, this idea that's come up a few times, FOMO or fear of missing out and, and how to drive some of that. So those are the major topics that we're going to talk about. And the reason why we're here is that I've talked to medtech entrepreneurs like yourself, as well as investors around the world, and discover that there's no silver bullet or magic or even specific formula about how to raise and invest capital in medtech. So my goal here is to extract insights to demystify this process, as well as help medtech innovators benefit from this information. So we have an audience of medtech entrepreneurs as well as investors, and I'd like to share your stories and advice with what I imagine is that first-time founder or CEO and has no clue of what lies ahead of them on their journey of raising capital. And so I thought the best place to start is learning from people like yourself and professionals who have gone through this battle. And so once again, the focus of this conversation, just to reiterate one more time, is as a medtech startup, what's it like to work with an investment banker and the value that they bring, that uniqueness of being a European startup, or for that matter, a Western startup having raised money out of China, and what does that look and feel like? And then also some of the factors that help drive a capital raise when it comes to having multiple investors involved. So before we get into all that, including your background, some fun questions just to kind of kick off the conversation. First one being you being in a med tech startup and and also a leader of an organization. Do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? What am I, am I missing anything or would you add anything? Well, um, I mean, I I guess it's clear you, you do need both. Um, But I must say, even, even though like from the beginning, uh, starting with Aducor about six years ago, we um, it was always a great team, and and you always realize like, hey, there's there's some sort of chemistry going on here, and I need to be part of it. But uh, the salaries need to be paid, and uh, for that we had a we had a 
we, we still have a very good uh, seed investor that, that really believed in us and he believed in, in the CEO that founded the company too. So um, that, that is definitely both is important. It's, uh, I almost want to say it's a necessary evil, but uh, money in itself is not evil. It enables us to, to actually do cool projects like, like this. So uh, yeah, definitely both, both, both are needed and uh, you need the team and the capital to go forward. And the, the next one I have a little bit of fun with, softer question, but do you believe in luck and how much does luck play into the success of MedTech? And, and it could be anything from the luck of showing up at the right company at the right time to raising capital at the right time or the wrong time, um, or even launching a product or building a product at the right or wrong time. So what's this notion of luck and, and how is it thrown into this regulated and also very complex industry that we all play in? Um, yeah, I, I mean, in terms of luck, I, I think um, our, our CEO put it best actually at, at the point where we're really not sure, are we going to be successful in raising capital, etc. He said, after we've raised the capital, then we'll actually, we'll actually say, yes, we knew exactly what, uh, what had to be done and uh, everything that you need to raise capital. But at this moment, it just feels like luck <laughs> if we actually succeed. So, I mean, the one thing, the one thing I um, I always love, or uh, since since I was a child, was the saying by a South African golfer. I'm I'm originally from South African, a golfer named Gary Player, and he said, "The more I practice, the luckier I get." Uh, and I guess there's a lot of truth in that. And um, yeah, you have to at, at least position yourself where you're in a place where you can find some luck you know and uh at least for the golfer it was practicing enough uh but yes there's there's definitely uh some some luck and providence and however you want to express that um but i think that the main the main factor is to go and position ourselves uh somewhere and everywhere we can um and i guess you, you already mentioned fear of missing out uh not just for the investors also for for the for the startups is uh, we don't want to miss out any opportunity that might look like a potential place where we can find some willing investors. And so, um, yeah, I think it's it's all about positioning when you're in this phase. And we're going to hear about some of these war stories throughout this podcast. And, and I am actually really excited about the story. But um, having been through that, and we'll learn it soon enough, if you knew what you know now about being a medtech entrepreneur, would you do it all over again? Or is this crazy game enough to go through it once would you would you want to do something differently if you could or do you love what you do <laughs> um i think if you if if you have this if you know that it's possible to get a team of such cool people working on on such a cool project then definitely i'd, I'd do it again um but to to realize that that hey this is actually something that that's that we're all in it for the long run and that it's such a cool project. I think that's something that I've only learned now and only because I've learned that I would do it again. Um, but how do you explain that to someone who hasn't been through this before? Uh, I, I didn't know it myself, but I guess um, uh, there was enough, there was enough confidence and um, yeah, motivation in the team for us to, to be able to determine that. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say is, uh, yes, I will. I will do it again because it's it's an incredibly, uh, incredibly rich learning experience. And, and I've had a few things in my life. I'm sure 
you have in yours, and I know I've heard it from others as well, where if you knew what you would go through, and if you could go back to the inception, like for example, if you jo- when you join Agicor, right, or, or in anything in life, if you knew what you were about to get involved with, you may not do it. But it's kind of some of that ignorance is bliss where you jump into it and then you can look in the rearview mirror and you're like, oh my God, I made it out alive. And then you'd probably say, yeah, well, the, the reward of however I feel now feels good enough that I would do it again if given the opportunity. But if someone told me from Jump Street what I actually had to go through, I don't know if I would have done it. So I, I know exactly what you mean. And I'm sure you feel the same. Um, and then the, this notion of, of being a chief, a chief commercialization officer as you are in Agicor and, and part of the executive team and, and even prior to that leading the business aspects of the organization when you joined. You know, if you and I were just talking about this, but if, if you were a one-year or two-year engineer or just a first-time sales rep or really just kind of starting out your career, you have this understanding of, oh, wow, these, these CEOs, these chiefs in the organization, these med tech investors who hold the money, um, it all seems so far away from what you're currently doing now in a, in a youth within your career. And it seems so glamorous and you guys have so much power and, and you guys can just wave your fingers and magic happens type thing. Is it glamorous being a, a chief within a med tech organization? Um, I guess maybe it was glamorous in a previous generation where you had you had like really shiny business cards that you threw around, but um, <laughs> no, there's, I, I mean, maybe that with the shiny business cards, it was also not very glamorous. Um, I mean, we're, we're a small team and, and why it's worked so far is that everyone is, is uh, in each other's business and, and interested in, in everyone else succeeding. And so there's, uh, it never felt like there was some sort of like, oh, you guys are up there and you guys are there. And there's, there's actually not so much glamour in it. And we, I realized uh, from, from uh, employee conversations, from the secretary to production people, to development people, clinical people, everyone in the, st- in the atmosphere where we're working in goes through such changes in their work as we enter into different changes of, uh, the tasks that are in front of us uh, in, in the development, building up the production and preparing clinical studies uh, that, that there's, there's, you know, it doesn't seem at least from where I'm standing now that it's glamorous at all. It's just, you just have to get some work done and uh, <laughs> hope that there's people that also uh, will listen to you and do the work that they're paid to do. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's, 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 there has to be, there has to be buy in, People have to see where we're going, where we're heading, and that this is actually a pretty cool environment to work in, and uh, we're working on a cool project. So, yeah, I, I guess it's it's very there's very little glamour. But what what's encouraging about that too is uh, there's a there's a nice German saying that goes everyone's just boiling with water. Everyone boils their food with water, and whether uh, whether it is some competitor that you look at and you're like, oh, are they are they going to be first or how's their technology doing? Or if it's someone with really fancy connections and fancy investors, are they going to be faster or better? At the end of the day, you realize, Hey, we're all, we're all, we all just have our computers and our tools that we have at Bay. We have, everyone has good qualifications. The scientific community is actually on a very similar level worldwide. And so 
yeah, we, we're not that 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 has made us realize not to be intimidated by by people out there and that we've got good ideas and we have to we have to stand for our good ideas and simply drive that forward. I love that. And and I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all just human. And and I've I've heard the, the painful stories of people who have these amazingly huge titles. And there's, at least from what I have heard, there's nothing glamorous about it. And, and even, you know, whatever it may be in this industry, as long as you're part of the medtech industry, there's so much going on, whether it's the regulatory side, the business side, the amount of connections that you need, the investors, it's all hard work at the end of the day. So um, I just wanted to always break that down because especially a lot of these entrepreneurs or even young people in their careers who just think that these people are untouchable and they're so far away, they're doing a lot of grind work too. So wanted just to get that out there. Yeah, um, I, I must be, maybe if I can just add, I mean, initially I, I started out as an engineer with, with the company and and it was so that my, my switch from, from the engineering side into the business uh, development side was so subtle that I almost didn't realize it. And before I knew it, I was in different roles than I started with. And it just feel, felt like, hey, I'm, I'm working on getting this part of the business moving forward and the others are working their parts. And that, that works. And if, if you have a culture like that, then it's also fun to work in. You were engineering either way. You were either engineering a product or engineering a business. Yeah. And speaking of the business and also the projects uh, and the culture that you had mentioned and alluded to before, Agicor, that's the name of your company, but what does it mean? What does Agicor mean? So um, I hope I get the story right. Um, the background is uh, German school kids can take Latin as an extra subject. And for me, coming from South Africa, I think it doesn't even make sense to to actually um, have the subject at school anymore because it's a dead language. But uh, as many a German has tried to convince me, there's all sorts of benefits of having that. So, so they, have, they have more Latin knowledge than you would um, normally expect people to have. And they know these things. So, so Adjucor comes from the Latin word adjubaris, I think. And that, believe, that means ad, like an adjunct. It's, it's next to. And so we have this device that, that is placed around the heart. And so it's next to the heart. And Adju is next to and core is heart. So it's next to the heart. Interesting. That is pretty cool. And, and I, I'm, um, I'm originally from Buffalo, New York, up in the Northeast. And um, I went to a private school up into, well, actually, I went to private school, even going to college. Um, but we had to take Latin until eighth grade. And then I finally, I finally switched to French um, in high school. But Latin was what we learned. It was crazy. Yeah. It, but it, to the point, that was the base. You had, you had a, if you, Latin is the base of all these romantic languages. So that's, that was exactly. And, and there's a lot of there's a lot of Latin and English too. So so even sure. even actually some of our British collaborators they're like, I love this adju and adju core because it's like adjunct and ad, and so um, at the end of the day it's it's sort of it has more this unique sort of character, but it uh, I think it differentiates us sufficiently in the crowded market of medical devices. I love the story behind the name. So thank you for sharing that with us. And and also lo and behold the man behind the voice we've been listening to you now for several minutes. Haman Naval, Chief Commercialization Officer for Educor. Tell us about yourself. You, you've told us that uh, you're from South Africa, so you've busted that bubble already, but tell us about yourself. W where do you come from in terms of how you've built your, your life, your, your professional life, your personal life, your academic career, your professional life leading up to you joining Educor? And then once we get to Educor, we'll just break open what you guys have been building. All right. Um, 
Yeah, so so I um, started studying engineering. Uh, ended. I come from a medical family, so father's a doctor, mother's a pharmacist. Uh, so I, I was always intrigued by the field itself, and um, uh, I ended up in ended up. I chose biomedical engineering, uh, probably for not such, yeah noble reasons just like because there, there were more girls in my class than there were in <laughs> mechanical engineering um but but at the end of the day i guess what do you know when you're 18 and what to what to study i ended up uh i, I studied in stellenbosch in south africa did my master's in cape town and in cape town i actually uh ended up doing a master's project in the lab of professor peter zilla with tom franz who was a german Coincidentally, um, I didn't go looking for the German factor, but um, he basically took over the research lab from Christian Barnard, who did the first uh, transplantation, the first heart transplantation. And so there was a there was like a strong legacy of innovation and driving things forward. And um, yeah, and those those first those first uh, or they actually had weekly lectures actually for all the. Uh, registrars, cardiac surgeon registrars, and there was always some sort of inspirational, uh, yeah, just paper club type presentations and uh, what's happening with cardiac surgery in Africa and things like that. And so they were very driven and very moving and shaking on, on the African continent and actually internationally also recognized. And that sort of started my love for cardiovascular medicine. Also uh, shared my office with a medical doctor and that was also a very very cool background to just ask questions that you just didn't know about the heart or medicine in general and so that's that's been a very that's been a very nice um, formative time in my education and then I had the opportunity to come do my PhD in uh, in Munich I had a wonderful girlfriend at the time who said she's not doing long distance so I have to make up my mind uh, came to Germany alone thought I'd I can have like a year of making up my mind. I realized I really missed her, uh, brought her along with me. And we've been living in Germany for like 12 years, complete my PhD, also spent some time in sales with uh, Biosense Webster. It's a Johnson Johnson company. Uh, was very good experience just to uh, speak German in a working environment, but also to get some insights into, the, into a sales organization and what they're doing there. But I felt uh, drawn more to the, to the innovative side of things. Not that they weren't innovative, but it was a purely sales organization. And so, yeah, Adjucor, um, I, I met the guys from Adjucor already in my PhD. They were at the time too small to take me directly after my PhD. And that was actually, that was a heaven sent because it, it gave me, it forced me to go out into uh, the unknown world there, get some sales experience and then move back into R&D and, that's how we came to, to Adjucor. Adjucor, the company itself, uh, it was founded by uh, Stephen Wildhert. Uh, we've got all easy names. That's what makes it so nice. Um, no, they, um, he's, a, he's a cardiac surgeon. Uh, he was for 20 years before founding, finding Adjucor. He founded the company with uh, an engineer that, uh, BM, that actually worked for BMW. We're in Munich. It's automotive uh, country. And... Um, and he was basically just fed up with, with uh, doing blood pumps and seeing these patients just coming off quite badly from the therapies. And there's a lot of bleeding, a lot of complications, 
uh, that they had to endure. And hey, isn't there a way that we could do this in a better manner? And um, yeah, and, and the idea for, for this device that uh, avoids blood contact was born. And it's not a new concept. It was already tried out in the 60s in, uh, in the acute cardiogenic shock setting. But uh, a lot has happened since then, especially also technologically. And yeah, the first concepts were born, first seed funding and some public grants were secured. And that's basically how the company uh, got off the ground. So now we know, obviously, who you are, and you alluded to what Agicor does. And just so we can give a, a frame of understanding, um, is it a pump or is it how, how does the actual technology work? All right. So, so basically, um, it's the the device is intended for patients that uh, need mechanical circulatory support. So the heart isn't functioning uh, sufficiently anymore not responding to medications or electrical therapy like pacemaking or CRTs. And so they need a pump. And gold, uh, gold standard would be to have a heart transplantation. But as we know, there's a big worldwide organ shortage, uh, organ donor shortage. And um, yeah, and so, so the, the idea of the device is that you have a sleeve that fits around the heart. The sleeve has integrated inflatable cushions and these cushions are inflated synchronously to the systole of the heart and deflated with the diastole of the heart. And so that means your heart, it, it adds a squeezing in the systole. So it helps squeeze out blood from the heart. And upon deflation, it, it also pulls the heart wall back. So it helps with the filling of the heart. And um, why it works is that uh, there's very yeah, uh, advanced material technology to actually have such uh, an implant and obviously also the production uh, methods to, to make such an implant. But also what's essential is basically that you uh, synchronize this, this inflating and deflating of the cushions on the heart surface um, to, to the natural heartbeat. Uh, so that, that there's all been very interesting bits of technology that have been developed over the years since finding the company. And so now we know that you started your academic career in some great wine country in Stellenbosch and then got your master's and then made it up to, to Europe with now your partner and um, have learned German along the way and have this incredibly stellar background of both engineering as well as sales experience and now entrepreneurial experience, which at least I've had the pleasure of meeting these styles of backgrounds of engineering mixed with sales and it's lethal in terms of building a career. So kudos to you. Um, Thank you very much. And now you guys are building a, a, a life-saving technology. And so I'm very fortunate you and I had a chance to obviously first meet and get in contact a couple of years ago. Um, and I'm looking at this press release right now where it says Educor raised 29 million euros in Series B funding. And this is going back to um, the summer of 2021, at least when the press release came out. And I know that you and I had been in contact in early-ish 2020. So right, I think right as the pandemic first got setting in. Um, so first and foremost, I, I definitely want to rip open this story of the 29 million euros, because there's a lot of learning lessons that fundamentally, this is why we're here um, to talk about how you've ultimately raised that money and where you raised it from. Uh, but before we get into that, it says Series B funding, and, and you said that Educor was a little bit too small to grab you right out of your PhD. Have you been along with them 
prior to the Series B financing, meaning in the, in the previous raise before that, or, or how did that look like, or how was it funded before this Series B? So, so there was there was a, a couple of seed rounds actually to start out with, and the seed rounds uh, could be matched by also getting uh, grant approvals for research projects. So, so we've we've been fortunate enough to sit in a um, yeah in a good ecosystem of uh, research grants going on, and because there's there's a lot of uh, potential with if if this technology when this technology works. Uh, it also helps to get good grant money, and that's also further validation for an existing investor that hey, this is going well. Let's uh, let's keep investing. And so, so I think this these these earlier rounds um, was what was really key. There was was a very good relationship with uh, with an investor that was able to support this project going forward. And so, um, the the what was what was always interesting from the, the conversations that you hear from, from our investor that did the seed rounds in the initial series A was, um, yeah, he, did, he just didn't want to invest in another app. It seems like the, an app will win if you push enough effort and money into uh, a sales organization. But like, what is the innovativeness that we can really deliver? And um, yeah, I guess this, this type of idealism uh, connected with a deep enough pocket to to actually put your money where your mouth is is not such a uh, common uh, phenomena and and basically one can attribute it to the very good relationship that our CEO had with our investor and uh, was able to keep up communication and and demonstrate progress sufficiently um, and so I was I joined I joined in the middle of that phase uh, going over into uh, searching trying to close the series B funding Okay, so you had the, the multiple seed rounds-ish, and then the Series A came on board, which sounds like from one investor. Am I getting that right? The, kind of it was, yeah, it was it was one main investor. There was some some seed money also flowed in from friends and family, and okay. uh, and there was yeah there was one uh, one smaller investor that also came in a bit later in the in the um, Series A. Yeah, it was it's, it was a bunch of smaller rounds that would bridge us until we get the Series B. Okay, so it was kind of like a, a series of small seed rounds exactly. where you kind of bypassed a, a traditional Series A and then just dro- drove right into a Series B. Yeah, I, I guess it was. Uh, in in retrospective, we we would define uh, s- some of these smaller rounds probably as Series A and maybe A two. Um, gotcha. Yeah, and then and then ultimately the the Series B is would be the one that brings us into the clinics. Got it. And then you joined, like you mentioned, in some in between some of these Series A smaller rounds, and then came on board. Was your purpose coming on board to drive and and, and close Series B, or did they just need all of your fundamental efforts and skill sets in addition to being able to help raise? I I guess one of the, one of the things that um, that I've learned the last couple of years is that at least in the earlier stages of the startup life, you can't always define that so properly. Now, now we're we're in we're in a better funded position where we uh, and and reporting is much has become much more critical and and needs to be 
much more detailed than it probably was uh, previously. There we can plan a bit better for this is what we need. We need this resources. We need these type of personnel to do this and that. When I joined, yeah, I, I basically help put out fires and uh, see there's an opportunity. Maybe we need to move more in that direction. Uh, that's where help is needed. That's where we actually need yeah, resources. And and I just jumped in there. So I guess, yeah, I've, I've colleagues, I have people that started the same time as me and they didn't necessarily do what I did. I guess it, it depends on what opportunities, how you position yourself. Uh, I mean, even myself, my own personal career, I also had to position myself in a place where I would do something that would be considered useful and where I was also drawn into to help with certain leadership functions. And going back to th this press release now, so we're going to jump into the fun part about this. So I, I see um, we have the Metrisys Holdings Limited, and this is all public in information, mm -hmm. and Maurizio Group. Um, in terms of existing investors and then this new investor, Metrisist Holdings Limited. First and foremost, before we jump into the story, coming in between the Series A and then going into closing Series B, you mentioned your history of being an engineer, getting your PhD, moving to different continents, and then going into sales. Um, is this your first time or was this your first time getting involved in a capital raise? Yes. Very cool. I love that. Okay. So before we even get into the, the story that I want to rip open with the details, more on the objective sense, you know, imagine you got a crowd full of first time entrepreneurs listening in here and they've never been through this war and, and battle of raising capital, right? But they're about to. And that's your audience that you're speaking to right now, if we can close our eyes and imagine. Having been through it now, what are some just high level bullet points or philosophical factors or even spiritual factors that you would want to share with them and like what is it really like to raise money what are some of the aha moments that you learned what are some of the really difficult moments and and, and things that you had to endure that you just didn't think were part of raising capital what are some of those bigger thoughts on raising capital that you could share with an, a group of entrepreneurs is it easy is it hard <laughs> um the fact of the matter is you don't you don't know how it will end up uh, and and like i said it's we're looking through the retrospective scope it's it's i can i can speak boldly about uh things that we did right and what one should do and how you should uh you know, direct your attitudes but uh but that's because we were successful and i i realize it's not that's not everyone's story and so i i have to I have to take a big slice of humble pie when I say any any of these things. Um, I mean, the the fact of the matter is, yeah, there's you you need that you need the correct lifeblood. I'm sorry if I can use your uh, your example. We we didn't. I might have not had this experience, and even the CEO didn't have this experience. But our our CTO um, Johannes Klaus, he actually. Uh, came from a company, uh, he was the CEO of a company that developed a dental implant. And, and he had a bunch of really interesting experience with like consort, consortiums of investors. And he, he always, uh, he's on our team and he had very in, good insights in what about this? What about that? Do we, maybe we need this McKenzie uh, consultant to really get us in there or maybe we need, this and that and 
And he was right with a lot of things. He was wrong with a lot of things. I was right with a lot of things. I was wrong with a lot of things. We made we made a lot of mistakes going. We had a lot of discussions. We had long discussions. We, we had a wonderful table to sit around. Uh, we have good coffee. Uh, it's it was it, it was a it was really a collaborative effort. And uh, add to that, um, even though we don't uh, we don't have a lawyer on our team, our our investor from the uh, Mauricio Group, they have an investor, and and they were really invested in our project. They really um, they realized, hey, we need to get this bigger round closed, uh, and so we just kept talking with them and kept open cards, and they. They also came at it from, hey, this is not the first business deal, uh, big business deal we've done. And so let's just go along there and try that and do this and uh, try and open that. So uh, what's what's the advice from that is sur- surround yourself with people that um, uh, that have different skill sets. And, and that's, that's not always so intentional. You can't always be so intentional about it, uh, but maybe you have to, you have to scratch out uh, what these people can actually do and, and allow people to talk and, and raise your voice when you need to raise your voice. Um, yeah, we had, I mean, this, this is a, this is a, um, there, there's, 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 there's all sorts of like weird experiences that came along that influenced your work from also from your private life. I had a, I had a, uh, I have a friend that spent a lot of time in Mongolia and at some point he said, when you're negotiating with the Chinese, remember this and this and that. And we're, I remembered it and brought it up in a meeting while we were negotiating and it worked. And, uh, and I mean, all sorts of like weird ex- life experiences that, that add together. And um, I guess the, the experience does count. Uh, how many gray hairs you have, I don't think you always have to be intimidated by people always having more experience and uh you know, long, longer CVs than you do. Uh, I think, I think it just needs, you know, some, some committed people going about collaborating, trying to make a project work. That's, uh, but, but what, what exactly you, you do need and what you should definitely do and should definitely not do. You have to, you have to uh, learn some good judgment and enjoy working with uh, your colleagues. I think that's really important. And, and, and on that, because I love that, that gray area that you just talked about, and especially pulling from personal and professional experiences, and you just never know where it's going to come from, which that's why I opened this podcast with, there's no magic bullet or silver bullet or specific formula, because it's the truth. And I love hearing these stories. Um, but once again, if we do go back to actually black and white, if you can make it happen, like little things, now knowing what you've done right, and like you said, what you know you've done wrong, because retrospective or looking in the mirror, it's much clearer. I mean, raising capital when you haven't done it before, I mean, what's the absolute necessary things that you do need? Like you do need to work with a team or not. You do need a pitch deck or not. Does a pitch deck versus one page executive summary work or not? Um, Do you always have to reach out to investors by the tens or hundreds, or is it made more sense to sit down and spend the extra two hours finding five because they really fit your profile. Like what are some of the mechanical things that you've learned retrospectively that hindsight, as well as looking forward, you will put into place and you would advise others to do to save them time. Okay. Uh, I mean, if, if you put it like this, 
when I can, if I can list some concrete things, I mean, we, we had, we had some, some reservations about just sharing, this is our technology, this is how it works, these are our results. Uh, maybe not so much about the results, but we had confidentiality concerns. And I think what, what was really helpful, uh, because, because a, lot of, a lot of investors won't sign an NDA before meeting with you. Uh, they, they first want to hear something. And so I, I guess what was important for us was to, to have like a little introduction package of documents ready that we can just send someone, whether it was a warm or a cold introduction. Uh, and that included an executive summary, uh, a teaser presentation that you could click through that's, that has nice pictures and maybe some, some explanations that are on a level that someone that's maybe not necessarily a medtech investor or maybe a rather a medtech investor could understand without having a big explanation for it. And then obviously some graphs showing what your projected sales volume will be when, when this actually takes off. I mean, that's... Those those are the basics, um, and then and then I guess the the critical next step is when when you meet the the investors, the potential investors you're talking to, is that that a convincing picture of the team that's involved comes across. And um, yeah, considering the time that we raised the capital, it was uh, or that we were trying to raise the Series B, like. Uh, end of 19, start of 2020, um, it, was a, it was a difficult time because a lot of these meetings then actually happened remote. Um, but, but we always had a good chemistry as a management team, the four of us, um, and, and we, uh, we believe we came across very well. And I think, I think the, I mean, the, we have a good product, uh, in my unbiased opinion, uh, it's it's really convincing, and I think it it was clear to to everyone that we spoke with that that this is a good idea, um, and no one ever doubted the team. We we really came across solidly, and we had this we had these nice steps of of having an introduction of information they can just have, and if they're interested, then we can actually dive into some details, um, and uh, and we could convince people of the team. So th th those those things are are essential. Um, and, and obviously the investors want to see the value that you'll be able to create. So, so they need to be aware of that. And then once, once, there's, once there's more interest, then you can go into an NDA, or that's at least what we experienced, and, and you can divulge some more information. The, the other thing that I would say is, is important is if you, um, if you expect to get investment, then you should also expect that the investors do a proper due diligence. I mean, um, yeah, and especially in the medtech industry, uh, you're going into a highly regulated industry and there's all sorts of documentation that has to be there anyway. So if, if someone does a due diligence, then you have to be ready for, for that. And not only on a technical level, but also that, you're, um, that you can show the financials of the, of the past years that, the, that you were active, that you can show your IP, um, what's the status of the, these things, of your legal contracts that you have. Um, and so that's a lot of work that um, one shouldn't underestimate and, and you can get those things in line. And then I guess what's, what's also very important to, to, have a, to have a clear and consistent message is also just your timeline. Because I guess maybe for, for, um, for products that are classified 
class one, two A, at least from the CE perspective, it is um, the timelines for getting regulatory approvals, maybe not so long, but as soon as you go two B, three, we're in three, um, the timelines are quite long. And that that is probably also what um, puts us into this valley of death, at least before before we close the, the series B. And, and I've heard some of your previous podcasts and other people also speaking about it. Hey, this valley of death is not so rosy. <laughs> That's why they call it the valley of death. And 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 it is just it's just very important to communicate these timelines clearly. Um, and and that 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 the investors understand this is what this is what we foresee will come. And um, yeah, that, that's just that's just essential to to just be clear and succinct, not not sketch the worst case scenario, and also not the optimistic will never be be able to happen scenario, but that which we're we're planning with, you know. And and so I guess that that's challenging because your long timelines can also lead to uh, to the uh, yeah the investor not being interested in your company. Because uh, for a lot of the financial investors, uh, and, and especially we had some some uh, nice patient VCs that sat down with us and said, like, okay, if I work back from your exit value that I can imagine, and okay, you're a European startup, so I'm going to cut 20% of, of what I expect you to, to exit with, um, because the US startups are the more valuable ones. So if I work back from that, and I've you have so many years that you that you need to get uh, into sales or when the exit will actually happen and to now uh, you need to consider this multiple and you know what we need to invest to get our money back in two three years and that's very that's very challenging for um, for a class three type device and and getting that onto the market so first and foremost thank you for sharing that with us now is the the hour that i've been waiting for on this one and, and want to get this out the fun part um a nice plug for our friends Olivier Daros and Ari Silverman over at Mavi. We'll talk about investment bankers and why you guys ended up using them. And then China. Um, so you just went through this whole effort of sharing how to approach or what to expect from a capital raise. Um, but let's overlay some specifics on that now because you didn't mention that ultimately the majority of your money came from China. So during your capital raise, I, I want to know, as a European medtech startup, and also the first time that you've been through this process before, you could have looked in your backyard in Germany. You could have looked a little bit further in the field and just stayed in Europe. You could have looked at the biggest market thus far and maybe knocked on some shoulders over in the United States, but you went over to China. And at least that was an option. Why did you guys even think about China? What happened that even brought you there? Um. I guess it's it's uh, th there's a number of reasons. The one is we definitely did look in our backyard um, to see what what would happen. The fact of the matter is the uh, the VCs for for carrying such a big ticket, uh, the VCs that that we spoke to uh, in the time looking for this funding in in Europe would rather take smaller tickets, rather three to five million on Series B where we were, and that just wasn't enough to to bring us to the point where we needed to be and to get a consortium together. If, if the VC is not, is not knocking on their own partner's doors, it's, uh, it's difficult to get by yourself to coordinate uh, VCs to get together. 
And um, and I guess during COVID, uh, there was a bigger risk appetite that was going that that's been happening in in Europe. But at least in the medtech space, we spoke to a number of of VCs, and um, the the timeline was just challenging for for a number of them. And and to to have such a big ticket on just one fund that was that was challenging for for many of them. Um, and so, actually, we didn't we didn't specifically look to China. Uh, our our lawyer of our um, of our investor is actually Chinese speaking, so he had some he had some initial conversations with people from China, but we didn't didn't pursue it actively to really go into the Chinese medtech investors. Um, essentially, what happened was we were contacted by an investment bank that were representative of uh, representatives of a big Chinese health tech company that were looking for the type of thing that we were doing. Um, and so that's, so in, uh, I guess, early 2020, we got into contact with this Chinese company. I had a first, uh, or first with the investment bank and then the, their um, uh, people that were, the company they were representing. And that's how we first got into considering China at all. Hmm. And was that investment bank who had initially contacted you, were they Chinese as well? Uh, no, it was a German. It was actually a German investment bank. They had offices in China too, but they were, they were based in Germany. And so initially, uh, our initial meeting was a German meeting with German-speaking people. And there, at the end of the day, they had a, a Chinese colleague who then uh, was responsible for communicating with their client in China. So then I'll let you fill in the gaps here. Um, you got involved in this German investment bank. They turned you on to this Chinese company. And ultimately the press release came out in June of 2021, at least the one that I'm looking at. So what happened in between that? <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it, was a long, it was a longer process. And um, at least from, from, what we, uh, from what we experienced, it was, they obviously also had to, understand the company, get to know the company. It was also times of COVID, so no one could travel. And normally, either we would be there um, in, in, the, in short notice or they would be with us. And so that, that, that made it hard initially. And uh, we were very, um, how should I say, we were very aware of that there might be cultural differences. But like I said, we've, we had... Uh, we also have some some people that uh, in the company uh, that have Chinese family and things like that. So it didn't feel like the cultural gap would be too much. Uh, and I guess cultures within cultures differ from company to companies. You know, there's there's some German companies that I would never want to work for, and there's others where I, where I'm working now that I love. You know, so so that also differs. And and I guess like you know, we, we were just shocked by certain elements in the beginning. Like we'd have a we'd have an invitation to, to meet up with them and there would be 20 people on the call, although only four were speaking and the others weren't introduced and no cameras were on. So, so that also, that was for us like, okay, is this, um, is this what Chinese investors are like? Um, not sure. And so, so that was a bit, there was a bit of hesitation, I guess, but, but the same probably goes for them. Like, Hey, we're, we're interviewing a company that an investment bank found for us. Uh, we need to be sure 
before we're putting a lot of money into their bank account. So, so I guess it goes both ways, but, um, but that process dragged out for quite a bit. And, and what happened is, is essentially, I mean, it comes back to that, the point that I mentioned in the beginning, we have to position ourselves. And uh, we then, we kept contacting other investors, although we saw like, hey, this, this is maybe one company that's, that's sort of semi-strategic. It's, it's basically their venture, the big health tech company's venture fund that would invest in us. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's actually, they, they understand the business a bit more. Maybe they've, they've, uh, they, can, they can stem a bit longer timelines and things. So, so we were very interested, but the process was taking quite long. And we realized like, hey, until there's, until there's no signature on, on a contract, uh, we, we don't have that commitment. So we kept looking and uh, we tried to position ourselves everywhere. And I mean, that's, it's actually at, at that point that I got into contact with you because maybe it was COVID and I spent some more time on LinkedIn than I usually do. And I saw, hey, there's this guy Giovanni Lauritella and I'm just going to write him you know what what can you lose sorry if this maybe causes you to get all sorts of unsolicited uh LinkedIn messages oh bring it on (laughs) I I love networking but thank you yeah no but I mean and and then we just had a call and and you said oh I know some guys uh maybe they'd be interested and um anyway so so the story goes you introduced us to the guys at Mavi Tank um and we we had we had a first introduction call with with Ari uh, Silverman, and and initially, uh, essentially, uh, we had feedback from from our investors, and they said like, yes, you know, you've got a you've got an investment coming up. You're about to sign a sign a term sheet. Do you really want to, you know, do you really want to sort of spoil this? And yeah, we. Um, uh, we then had to tell Ari, no, thank you. We've we've got something going on. And he's like, mm, okay. And then we then we actually uh, because there was still no ink being dried on a contract, we um, we continued carefully looking, not not putting, yeah, you know, not moving forward as though we have nothing. But we realized we didn't have anything. So we kept uh, looking. We participated in uh, in like a Metech investor conference. I believe it was the Metech summit, and. Ari contacted us again and said, like, come on, you guys are in such a good space. You know, just uh, we've got some great people. Can, can we maybe just contact people, uh, some people? And we were, of course, afraid, hey, what if they contact the same people that we're uh, currently in negotiations with? Because, I mean, yeah, you have to you have to honor your NDAs. It's not just a legal matter. It's also just you know, doing business and, and creating trust, you know. Um, and so, so they could. The, through a process of exclusion, they, they said, okay, they would contact a couple of names. And, um, and essentially, we got into contact with this company called Mitrasist. Um, and, and that was basically the, the first meeting we had. We we're like, wow, it seems like we're, we're speaking to a, to a team that's like us. You know? and, and even though there's the, the cultural difference, German and China, there was a completely different mindset. Uh, to, with uh, in comparison with the other Chinese investors that we were speaking to, and still our investor said, "Hey, you don't want to, you don't, you don't want to spoil what what you have now because you've signed a term sheet and we're in the contract negotiation phase." You know, 
But we realized that in the negotiation phase with, um, let's call this China One, um, things were things were being taken off the table that was initially there. And um, I believe it was just, uh, I mean, it's it's obviously also professional investors and it wasn't the first deal they've uh, they've made. And so I guess they saw a room for negotiation to make the deal more attractive to them. And the, the conditions got worse and worse for us. And it involved uh, the funding being being reduced uh, less than what we needed. Uh, it in, involved a tech transfer to China. It was it was all starting to get very complicated. And and essentially, the, then there was like some sort of, I, I'm, I can't call it anything else, but a divine intervention where, where uh, we actually, we actually wanted to to tell Mitrosis, no, thank you, we're not interested. And and the the email that that came from our CEO was was a bit um, not so clear cut that we were rejecting, but we were really flattered by their offer and them wanting to getting to know us more and and find out what we're about in our technology, even though we've had a, an introduction before. And and the, the Mitrosis wrote the guys from Avitech saying like, I don't understand this email. Are they rejecting our wanting to speak to us or are they on board because we're, we're really interested and we'd love to go with them. And that was just the, just the tipping on the scales that, um, that allowed us to, to continue with negotiations with them. And, um, and before you know it, Christmas, 2020, we spent, um, they are writing documents and uh, reviewing contracts and setting up term sheets because we were in a, contract negotiation phase with the one uh, with China, China one and we're preparing term sheet negotiations with Microsoft. And so we were, we, we had two deals going on and um, that was, that was incredible because uh, essentially even Mavitech said like, Hey, are you guys sure you want to proceed with this? Because you've got one deal on the table. And what if you spoil this one deal that you have on the table and uh, Mitrosis doesn't doesn't take you. What if they find something that they're not interested in? Are you guys sure that you have the right value proposition? And we were sure, and and we we pressed on, and and that that actually, at the end of the day, it actually proved incredibly advantageous because we had, uh, and we had to do it very carefully because you didn't we didn't want to aggressively say, oh, we've got a better offer here. What can you give us? You know, it's it's not like bartering on a market. It's 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 a much finer, much elegant, more more elegant uh, process. But we had we had incredible facilitation that was also given to us by the investment bankers. And there, that I will say, what one should probably look out is uh, look out for is, um, I think, why it was also so good for. Um, for Microsoft was that we had we had contracted Mavitech, the investment bank Mavitech, to to find us an investor, whereas the China One deal they had contracted they had contracted the other investment bank to find us, and so that investment banker was working for the advantage of the the investor. Here, Mavitech was working for the advantage of us because if the deal goes through, they get the cut uh, from us. And uh, maybe, I mean, 
they get the cut. They get a cut either which way, but obviously we we want the best deal for us because um, yeah because we're us and we're not the investor, and 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 I guess that was really important. And but but then it's not just that; it's also that the the way that the negotiations were facilitated by the investment bank. Um, I I didn't understand the value of that uh, beforehand. I didn't understand why there is such a thing as investment bankers and why why are they paid this uh, amounts of money but then you see how they were able to bring these two groups of people together and and um it was it was really it was really incredible to see how they facilitated certain difficult uh, situations um and and much better than than the china one team because i think i have a feeling the the value of the investment bank was obtained by the investors in the China One deal, whereas with Microsoft, the value uh, was given to us. Although I know now, too, uh, looking at the deal and and knowing what happened, is that they obviously also they want to and need to honor their um, relationships also to the investors in China because that also is important for their next deals. And so, so I think. They just had a very good balance of negotiating and of facilitating uh, these things, and they have good relationships to to medtech investors in China. And and uh, yeah, and then I also have to speak for Microsoft is the fact that that they simply have a they have a company culture, they have a way of communicating that was just very much in tune with where we were, and um, and we're very thankful that at the end we were able to close with them. Um, in, in, in a very short time uh, compared to the other deal. So there's a, a lot out of that. And I, and I love that story um, because there's just dynamics that are very important for people who are raising capital to understand relationships, who holds the power, where's the energy flowing, um, who pays attention to who, when, why, and where. So that's really, really important. So first and foremost, I just want to get this out of the way. You mentioned that your CEO who sent this one email that it was semi misinterpreted, but also could have been the crux of the deal where that's possibly one of the reasons why Microsoft really dug their heels in and wanted to get further in. Um, and if he was actually softly turning them down, but they interpreted it as possibly exactly. <laughs> keeping it open, you know, going back to what we talked about at the opening of this, you know, divine intervention depending on who you are and where you are in life, divine intervention or luck, but th- there's some of these things that can't be explained and that you can't read in a, in a book or get out of a theory or learn from MBA school that happen in business and happen in life that, you know, it's, it's timing, it's luck, it's being at the right place at the right time. So very cool to at least hear that. But, but maybe, maybe I can also, I can just also speak for the people involved. The, the fact of the matter is the, the, um, our CEO, like, he really has a has a, a a very good way of of communicating friendly. It's just people, you know. And and one is when when you know, like I didn't have to give up a career to to find uh, to to start a new company. He gave up his cardiac surgery surgery career to find this company. So he had a lot more riding on it. Uh, and and still, he maintained a friendly tone, respectful in. In all, in all aspects, and and I think yeah that that goes a long way because especially like in, in fundraising you know you get frustrated and and you want to sometimes say all sorts of nasty things but but like 
keep keep face don't or don't lose face and i guess that's that's something that the that the chinese are also uh, firmly aware of and i think that's uh that's that's a very important thing to just keep the cool and uh yeah just yeah. Keep, keep your cool so I, I we've had a really good fundamental story after obviously getting introductions. We, we told the story that I definitely wanted the world to hear. Um, if you don't mind, if we have a little bit more time together, I just want to kind of break down a few key points on, on the major topics. Um, sure. So once again, China, investment banker and um, Mavi, uh, and then also the um, idea of FOMO. So first and foremost, just some key learning lessons, just like I asked you, just high level of what you learned as a raising capital, what you learned in raising capital. Um, I, I, I want to break it down. In terms of China, you explained that there's different cultures even within countries or families, et cetera. For all those listening, and maybe if they go to raise money out of China, maybe they might have a slightly different experience. But what you're about to share will at least give them a North Star to at least be somewhat aware of. You mentioned 20 people jump on a call. Some are introduced. Most of them are not. You can't see their faces. Obviously, you're not traveling. It's COVID. But a few things to share just in general that you weren't aware of previous, whether it's the Chinese culture or raising money out of China, what are some things that you culturally learned or were big aha moments for you on being a European company or a Western person raising out of China? Like what are some of those things that if you were to tell objectively to another med tech company who's thinking about raising money out of China, just pay attention to this, this, and this, or Here's a better way to phrase it. If you could be your friend saying in Mongolia, who lived in Mongolia and saying, you know, this is how you should negotiate with people out of China. Now, having been through it, what would you give advice on culturally being aware of raising money out of China? I, I must be honest. I mean, uh, the, the differences from an investor point of view uh, with regards to to the European investors that we had contact with, is is maybe not so big. I think what what one needs to be aware of is uh, is it a financial investor? Is it do they have some sort of strategic interest? Um, if if it's a financial investor, then they need to they need to make their multiples. And I mean, it might sound hard, but that's why they are an investor. <laughs> And and the the Chinese investor and the European investor need to make their multiples either which way. I think it's it becomes a bit more it becomes a bit more unclear when it's a strategic or a semi-strategic. What what is their what is their motivation for for actually investing in you? And and I guess one doesn't always have the luxury of choosing that. Um, if if you are if you have no one else investing in Europe and there's someone in China saying, we'll invest in you, then maybe that's, that's what you have to do. And uh, there's not much you can do about it. But if you, if you have a choice, and I think it's, it's also really important to see uh, this, this company has also worked in this field that can maybe uh, assist in this, in helping with market entry there. They have some other advantages that they can leverage. And, that would that would go for a U European or a Chinese investor. We didn't have a lot to do with uh, with American investors. It, it seemed it was at least only later in COVID where it was much easier to jump over the pond. But um, but like I said, it was. I, I feel from the and from from the 
the amount of European investors we spoke to, uh, and, and even though we only spoke to a few Chinese investors, um, it, was, it was not so much different because we always had good help from an intermediary like the investment bank. So they helped, they really helped to translate that which we maybe understood wrong or whatever. And, and I think it's always important to ask an intermediary to, to help, even if it's not an investment banker that you have someone that, that has spent some time in the space that can, that can give you advice on a regular space. But, but I, I, would, I would be arrogant to say I know, I, I can describe to you exactly the differences between the Chinese and the European investors uh, because we, we had too little contact with, with Chinese investors. But that's equally as valuable information to think about, right? Because there's a lot of people in the West who have heard of people raising money out of China or know they exist, but you know they, they use different symbols to communicate. They speak a very different language. There are hours difference in terms of time zones. And it just all becomes daunting if, if it's not super clear as to why you should do that. Um, and, and if there's any reservations as to why it's so difficult, then people will just naturally not want to pursue that or, or even consider it. So breaking down these barriers, if you're sitting here saying, sure, there may be slight differences here and there, but they're so minute. And, and realistically, our experience of working with European investors or Chinese investors was not drastically different and just boils down to human behavior and motivations at the end of the day. That's huge news. That's huge, valuable information because now all of a sudden all these startup companies can realize that they have another place to go if their own continent is not able to help them. Yeah, yeah I guess it, it, what it comes down to is, is that which is actually also communicated is the fact that uh, the, this China One, as, as I, I'd call them, they were interested in doing a tech transfer. And you have to be aware what the tech transfer entails. And they didn't, they weren't, uh, they were always transparent about that's what they want. That is their goal. And is that okay for you? Is that what you want? Is, is, do you feel that's strategic, uh, strategically helping your company or is it, will it damage your company? Is, that, uh, is, is having that know-how there good or bad? And I think that's that's basically a value judgment that you have to sort out for yourself. Um, yes, and and so we we definitely, obviously, you have at least stereotypical stereotypically you have these fears of like you know the the Chinese are going to steal all my IP and uh, copy paste it in China. But uh, but but the serious investors, um, and especially if they have track records with the investment banks that that you've seen, and the investment banks also realize that they need to sell that. So they also uh, try to get you on board and help you understand who the people are that you're dealing with. And that was also very helpful by having the investment banker on our side, the Mavitech guys. They, they really also brought that message across. But I actually have to say for the other people too, and, and the serious investors, um, I think, can't afford to, to play that, uh, that type of uh, card where they are you know, completely swindle the, the companies out of uh, their values. Um, so huge valuable points. And that's exactly what I, I wanted to get out of that. And, and I'm glad to know that China is an option for all those entrepreneurs listening. That's really what I wanted to summarize there. Um, you made some great allusions to 
you didn't have so much interaction with the Chinese investors because you always relied on some of these intermediaries. And, and then I want now segue over to that and highlighting Mavi. I'm friends with them. You're friends with them. Um, I've heard wonderful success stories of, of Mavi, Olivier Davos and Ari Silverman, and also the team over in China who have been helping out these Western startup companies uh, be able to raise money successfully out of China. And, and they've really bridged that gap. And so before I forget that, I, before I go on, I, I do want to ask one question I forgot. So you mentioned the tech transfer with China One. Ultimately, did you guys do an equity deal with Mitrasist or did you guys do a joint venture and, and, and tech transfer? No, an equity deal. Because awesome. they, yeah, they, they, they saw that actually the, the, the best deal for them is actually to see how, how the value is created here. And afterwards, you can, you can do tech transfer and things like that but that's that's not the topic for now just just that that insights they 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 knew they, they really know their industry they know the medtech industry and, and to to talk with investors like that is is actually incredibly valuable awesome okay so then going back to the point um once again a room full of entrepreneurs have never raised capital before and all of a sudden now they have to you've now raised money out of china but more importantly you've used an intermediary to help that. And, and you have alluded to it throughout the story that you just shared on the value that they bring. But I want to just clarify that. Why would you recommend a startup company to think about using an investment banker? What value do they really bring? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I mean, we've also had investment bankers, not, not only uh, with this, but previously that we've spoken to that we felt didn't bring us any value at all. They, had, uh, they helped to get some warm introductions. Um, yeah, so, so I can't speak for, I, I didn't do a, a systematic review of all investment bankers, but what I can say is well, if this is an amazing plug for Mavi, then go for it then. I mean, because not, not all service providers are great, but there's some great service providers. So if you had success with Mavi, then plug away. Yeah, no, no, um, no, we're really happy. Um, I mean, obviously they, they also they also take the cut of the deal. Um, but but considering they they uh, they managed to to pull this through, obviously in in concert with us, um, they they did a really good job of just understanding us understanding their investors and trying to bring the, the groups together. I mean, one must also consider that it's not just the investors and the startup that's involved in such a deal. Um, we, we had very good chemistry with Microsoft. Uh, that which was really difficult on that part was, was uh, the contract negotiation phase where there was just, there was just, problems between the lawyers and and the lawyers had had added um and 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 so so beyond just helping the investor and the startup connect they also had to facilitate okay the the lawyers of the investors and the lawyers of the of the startup they also need to to get around one table and and agree that 3.1 should say a b and c and not a b c d um, and and so th there were all sorts of things there that they needed to facilitate, and um, for that matter, it was also not only the investment bank, but but especially in the in the initial stages of just fixing the term sheet, that needed the especially the facilitate of of a good um, intermediary. And what was what was also very good about 
the way they did it is they they set up a term sheet that, that the Mavi Tech guys they uh, they fought for getting through a term sheet that's quite clear. It's so clear that you can use this term sheet and just write the contract off of it, just with all the extra finer details and the guarantees and whatever you need to to put in there. But but the main terms should be clear. And we saw that with the other with China One, there was a, a term sheet that was still there were still many points that needed to be negotiated, and that that can become dangerous. So I mean, if uh, if you come back to advice to other startups, when you before signing a term sheet, make sure those things are clear, that there's not major negotiations that still need to happen after signing a term sheet, because that's going to that's going to stretch out this um, contract negotiation phase that you possibly can't survive because your money's got, your money are, um, is going to run out. So, um, so Mavitech, they have, they have quite, quite good understanding of not only the relationship that has to work, but also the necessary steps, uh, giving a timeline for what we need to do by when, uh, in order to make these, these timelines. And, um, and that, that didn't only push us to obviously deliver it to the timeline. They also pushed the investors and they, um, if you think the people with the money don't, they don't need to be pushed or they don't allow themselves to be pushed, they did, they did it very elegantly. And, and I, don't, I don't feel that, that either side was placed under any pressure that was not positive pressure, if I can put it like that. Um, yeah, so, so they, the, they communicated well, they facilitated well. Um, can I tell you something where that's, that's really that we found incredibly positive uh, from, from the way they facilitated things. Every time we'd have a call with MitraSyst, uh, they would be involved, obviously. And after each call, they summarized quickly the conversation, the main points from the conversation in a couple of bullet points. And that's just to, just, just to document, hey, this is what was said, this is what was agreed, that there's no, um, yeah, confusion about hey what did we actually agree upon before going into the next step and you might think that's that's a that's a um, irritating administrative effort to do but but to clarify things in communication um, when you're communicating over 5,000 miles and over a zoom call that that becomes really important and also considering the size of the deal and uh, the stakes that were involved. I love that. Um, and, and also kudos to Ari and Olivier for being able to pull this off. And, and obviously you got a fan here uh, in terms of a successful client. So congratulations to all involved. Um, I, I do want to leave off on this one small thing and, and you I mean, it's actually not so small and you just alluded to it on time timelines, positive pressure. But you also talked about the story of you had this China one thing on for a while. And you were introduced to them and, and, you know, yeah, there was a term sheet. Yeah, there was discussions, but the ink wasn't even on the paper, let alone dry. Um, and it kept on going on and on and on until you got introduced to somebody else and you still kept on looking. So this whole thing of um, whether it's positive pressure from an investment banker onto its client, meaning you, the startup company, or the investor who's going to deploy the money, or... Um, just in general, having multiple investors looking at the same startup, 
this idea of FOMO, fear of missing out, or positive pressure in a, in a deal. Um, how important is keeping pressure on an investment deal now that you've been through it, um, having multiple people look at it? I mean, I hear investment bankers talk fairly regularly, like always shop the deal around, always shop the deal around. I hear from entrepreneurs saying, yeah, you know, just when you think you're about to sign, make sure you get another one on there or have multiple strategic look at you. This whole idea of human behavior of, oh, I can't miss that. Okay, it's mine, but no one's going to take it away from me right now. So I can move on my term. Oh, wait, wait, someone's about to take it away from me right now. I got to move right now. Um, so this fear of missing out, and we hear this acronym FOMO so regularly on this podcast series. What's your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I think, I think from an investment banker's point of view, it's much easier to speak like that. Um, from, from a startup point of view that has, is facing long timelines, we need a, a significant investment to, to reach our milestones. Um, it's, not, it's not so straightforward and it's not so easy because there's a lot riding on it. And, and if, you, if you tell your, uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of deals going on and, and I know there's, uh, one day I read articles saying, there's not enough deal flow or really big innovative projects. On the other day, you read there's so much, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, whatever. The whole scope of, of, of things are out there saying like, hey, I can, I can just negotiate as I want to because there's enough money out there. But, but there's, it's smart money. It's not money that's just thrown down the drain. So, so I think one should be very careful with that we 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 took great care not to scare any investors off or to dishonor the fact that they that these investors the investors of china once spent significant time um and efforts investigating our business case and i mean uh, apart from the fact that that we had much better chemistry with with uh Mitrasis, the guys from china one were really competent and uh, when you read the questions that they um, asked us in terms of the te technology and the business case, they had they were well informed. They they were really really good uh, good guys. Um, so you can't just say, ah, look, we've got this, and what they offered here will will you go one step uh, higher? It's not so easy. And so so I think it's it's important to create some some tension there, um, but but you need to you need to be very careful in how you communicate this um, because, because it, it, you know, you come across as a jerk when you, when you say like, Hey, I've got this offer me more, you know, that's, that's, that's never the intention. And I think, I think that the intention really is that you get a fair deal that you, that the, that the early investors and the founders are not completely uh, you know, drowned out of the investment round um, and, and that they, in one or two extra financing rounds, they're out of the company. That that can't be the end goal, um, and so so th there needs to be a fair valuation. There needs to be a fair um, deal structure that happens. And um, but but that when there's money on the table, someone's going to grab it. So if if you only have one offer on the table, then you obviously run the risk that you don't have a leg to stand on when someone says, "No, you know what." Let's let's turn down that valuation. Uh, you know, let's let's add this and this condition that I also have. So that is that is the hard truth. And I guess 
I guess that's why there's uh, there's people specializing in negotiation and investment banks that facilitate deals like this. So I think I think that's that's also a place where you need to be led by the investment banker because even like I said, the the Marvitech guys, they uh, although although Ari was pushing, Olivier was saying, "Are you guys sure you want to disturb that which you already have?" Um, it's it's not not always so straightforward. So so having an intermediary, even if they they cost something, um, we can see the value in that and and how we were able to close this deal. This is the story that I was looking for, and we've gone over time. It's a longer podcast than usual, but certainly worth the squeeze on this one because we cover a lot from fundamentals to China to investment bankers to FOMO. And, and I'm so glad that you guys finally were able to, and not only that, and your first capital raise and, and what it feels like to go through that. So I'm so glad that you guys ended up getting to where you guys needed to be. Haman Deval, Chief Commercial Officer at Educor. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing the story, your insights, your advice. This is the MedTech Money Podcast Series where we demystify raising and investing capital. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.